0: cause us over and over again to come back to wonder again at the Christmas story, and each week to call you to wonder again at the reality of God coming and dwelling among us. Uh, Recently, the kids and I watched this movie called Horton Hears a Who, which if you haven't seen it, is actually a wonderful kids movie. It's this adaptation of the Dr. Seuss story by that same name, and the story, if you don't know, is, is essentially there's this giant elephant named Horton, and he's sort of walking through the jungle, And all of a sudden he sees this speck flying by, just seems like a speck of dust, and yet Horton hears a cry coming from the speck. And what Horton discovers is actually this tiny speck is actually a planet, and on it is this creature named Who, who live in Whoville, and there's a mayor of Whoville, and Horton and the mayor of Whoville become friends. And everyone in Whoville thinks that the mayor is crazy for thinking that there's something beyond this speck, as if there's some great creature or being that's sort of protecting their speck and watching over their speck. And as the story goes, the plot of the story is that they don't know that the speck is in grave danger. And if it isn't for Horton's careful care of them, the speck is going to be ruined. And the whole story is Horton, who is going to, even if it costs his life, He's going to save this speck and the creatures on this speck. Now, needless to say, this made for great conversation between me and the kids as we talk through all the shadows in that simple story of what we're celebrating, what we'll come back to over and over again this month. right? Because uh, our skeptical friends will look at us and they'll say, don't you know? I mean, you've seen pictures of the galaxy, of the universe. Scientists have shown us pictures. Scientists have called this planet we live on the pale blue dot. I mean, the size and the scope of the universe, this is just a tiny speck. And don't you know that's all we are in the real estate of the universe? And do you really imagine that there's some being outside of our world that's watching over and hovering and caring for and protecting and is committed to this tiny pale blue dot? And, and we sound like the mayor of Whoville going back. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we believe. And if the Christmas story is true, then the wonder of the season is that, that there is a being beyond us and our world who cares for this speck and is so committed to the creatures on this speck that he is going to give even his life to making sure that we are saved. In fact, he's not even just going to protect the speck, he's going to enter into the speck and become one of the creatures in Whoville. I mean, that's the wonder of this month that we're going to call you to over and over and over again is to consider together the unbelievable good news of a God who cared for this pale blue dot enough to enter into it, to become one of us, to become vulnerable, that the, the most high will become the most low. That's the story of Christmas. The most high is going to become a man, nay, not just a man, but vulnerable enough to become a baby that the Most High will become the Most Low. That's what we'll celebrate this month. So what we're going to do this morning is begin with the first one who was told of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's in the city of Nazareth to a young girl named Mary. Her story is Luke chapter 1. This is what Danielle just read for us, so leave your Bible open to Luke 1. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book. While you turn there, let me just pray and ask God for his help as we preach and hear his word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray this morning that through every verse, you would stream our hearts to Jesus. Like a mighty river, all of our attention would would be given to him. All of our thoughts would be given to him. All of our hearts would be given to him. All of our affections would be given to him. You would stir everything about us like a magnet. Pull it to Jesus. Make much of him through our time so that we might adore him. Come, let us all adore him. Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Mary's story begins in verse 26. Here's what it says in Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, So in the sixth month, we're told that Gabriel, the angel from God, goes to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, as careful readers, we want to go, okay, the first word says in the sixth month. So we want to ask ourselves, in the sixth month of what? Right? What's the timeline here that we're given so that we know? In the sixth month of what did Gabriel go? Well, to know that, you'd have to read the passage right before. If you scan up, You're going to see in verses 5 through 25, there's another birth announcement of another child that's given. The angel Gabriel comes in 5 through 25 to announce the birth of this other child, John, Jesus' cousin. Later, you'll know him as John the Baptist. John's birth is announced here. And in verse 5 through 25, here's the basic story. There's this elderly old couple, Elizabeth, this barren woman, and her husband, this priest named Zechariah. They're very old, they're past the prime of their life, they're nearing the end, and they have no children. Now Luke almost goes out of his way in verse 6 to tell you that they were blameless and righteous and were keeping God's commands. And Luke goes out of his way to tell you that so that you don't come to any wrong conclusions about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He doesn't want you to think wrong of them. He doesn't want you to conclude they have no kids because of some sin in their life. And so he goes out of his way to tell you this was a blameless, righteous couple. Now, we have much more to consider, but I want to pause here for just a second. Just to say, if there is in your life this unfulfilled longing, if there's pain... For example, this is a verse I've thought through myself. If there's there's loss, if there's miscarriage, if you've lost a child, if you have this unfulfilled thing in your life, Luke here is letting you know, I, I want you to know God wasn't mad at this couple. This wasn't because of some sin in their life. This wasn't some kind of judgment or punishment. They weren't going through this pain because they were horrible people. In fact, they were righteous and godly and blameless and faithful, and yet there was this painful reality. I I want Luke, in this season, as Pastor Binu prayed for us, in this season that can often even tend to grief, as you consider these unfulfilled longings, this would be a wonderful place for you to camp out at. For in verse 6, you to remember, here's this godly couple, righteous and blameless and faithful and following Jesus, And they're going through this painful thing. How many years has Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed, begging God for a child? And yet, one doesn't equal the other. God's not mad at them. God's not angry at them. God in this story has purposes bigger than they imagine. So Zechariah is the man, the husband. And one day, as the story goes on, he gets appointed to offer incense in the temple. Now there's like 19,000 priests is what I read in that time. So not everyone can serve in the temple at the same time. So there's sort of a lotto system by which you're chosen to offer incense. This is a once in a lifetime thing. You get this happen once, you never do it again. So in his old age, Zechariah gets chosen to offer incense in the temple. So he's in Jerusalem, the holy city, in the temple, in the holy place, and he's going to offer incense in the daily prayers to God. At that moment, the text tells us an angel shows up. An angel shows up to Zechariah. Zechariah is scared out of his mind. He crawls out of his skin. And this angel tells him, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You're going to have a child. Zechariah's response to that is, no way. Stop pulling my leg. There's no way he doesn't believe a word that comes out of the angel's mouth. And in essence, the angel says, okay, you don't believe the words coming out of my mouth. No more words are coming out of your mouth. You're done talking until this thing comes to pass. You are going to have a child. Now, listen, at this point in where the Bible is, it's been about 400 years since God has spoken to his people. When the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, when that chapter is done, it's sort of the dark ages. It's sort of like God's gone into the dark. There's no more angels, no more prophecies, no more visions, no more signs, no more wonders, no more miracles. There's sort of silence. It's just dark. And then the first pages of the gospel begin, and all of a sudden it's like everything goes from zero to 60 in three seconds. Now all of a sudden there's angels and there's prophecies and there's signs and there's wonders and there's miracles. There's all kinds of things in a way that right from the first verses you know God is up to something. God is up to something huge again. In fact, in this first couple, you can't help but go back to some of the earlier stories in the Bible. When you hear this elderly, barren couple who had longed for a child, can't have a child, an angel visits them to tell them they're going to have a child, if you've read through the first parts of the Bible, you go, I've seen this before. In fact, there's a story in the book of Genesis of this elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah. They're righteous and blameless before God. They can't have children. An angel comes and says, you're going to have a child. Abraham goes, stop pulling my leg. He doesn't believe a word of it. And all of that comes back to go, That was a special child born to Abraham and Sarah. And God is up to something again. And it sort of begins to stoke the fire and go, God must be doing something. In fact, this child that's about to be born to this elderly barren couple must be someone special. In fact, that's what Luke tells us. In verse 15, you'll read that this child will be great before the Lord. This isn't just an ordinary birth. This is going to be a great child. And verse 17 will then say, and this child is going to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. This isn't an ordinary child. Now, here's where you go. Hold on a second. Here's where you go. Okay, if angels are appearing and there's signs and wonders and a word from God and a miraculous birth and a barren woman is pregnant and all of that, is just for the one who is essentially a forerunner, then how great is the one he is running ahead of? Right? If, if all of these signs and wonders and Abraham-Sarah-like miracles and all of this is just for the one who's going to prepare the way, then how great is the one who he's preparing the way for? How great is the one who's coming after him? In fact, that's what Luke is doing here. Luke essentially puts both of these birth narratives together, one on top of the other, so that he's saying, look, if this first one is great, then the second one is even greater. And if this first child is special, oh, then you can't even imagine the child that's coming after him. If all of this is happening for the one who's just preparing the way, imagine how great the one is who he's preparing the way for. You see... From the hour of John's birth announcement, his job has been to prepare the way for the one who is coming after him. And in that way, it's actually a very fitting thing. It's very fitting that John's even birth announcement would begin this way because John the Baptist's whole life was about that. John the Baptist's whole existence was for one reason, which was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. It's almost fitting that even from the hour his birth is announced in Luke's gospel, that's what it's doing. It's getting you ready for the one who is even greater, who would come after him. John's whole story was to point people and prepare people for Jesus. You see, when John grows up, uh, his ministry just explodes and everybody's coming to him. And when he's an older man, he's preaching and someone goes to him and goes, John, tell us, are you the Christ? Christ meaning the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that the whole world has been waiting for. John, is that you? And John almost laughs them off. He goes, I am not the Christ. And they go, okay, then, John, who are you? Because obviously you're great. Who are you, John? And John's answer is, you know, in fact, you can't even describe me as a person. The best way to think about me is I'm a voice. I'm the voice in the wilderness that's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. The, the best way you could think about me is not even as a person. Just think of me like a voice. When I think of John the Baptist, <clears throat> here's what I think of. In, in American politics, there's few times where we have something like really regal and royal where the whole country can get behind it. Politicians throw mud at one another. Our president's about to be on a reality show in a month. It's not very regal often. So when you have these regal royal moments, it really catches your eye. And one of those moments is the State of the Union address. I love watching it. It doesn't matter who the president is because it's this one time where everyone gets together and there's sort of a formality to it and a ceremony and pomp and circumstance to the whole thing. Everybody who's who's who shows up in the Capitol building. They're all dressed in their finest threads because the president is about to address the nation. And the president doesn't just walk in and give a speech. That's not how it happens. There's sort of a hush that falls over the whole room. And if you remember seeing it on TV, what happens is the back doors get thrown open and a man walks in. Now, you have no idea who the man is. You don't know his name. You don't know his office. You don't know how he got into D.C. or even into the building that day. You have no idea who he is. But with a loud voice, when the room is perfectly still, he says, Mr. Speaker of the House, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. And then the room just erupts. The president walks in and there's applause and cheering. They're standing to their feet. It's an ovation for five and seven and 10 minutes as the president slowly makes his way, shaking hands one aisle to the other. The whole room erupting in applause as they make his way down to the front. He greets everyone, stands at the podium, and is ready to hear the message. Now, at that moment, that man slips out the back door and nobody thinks about him again. Nobody has any idea who he is. Nobody doesn't even remember because every eye and the spotlight and the TV and everyone is fixed on the present as it should be. And John goes, let me tell you who I am. I'm that guy. My, My entire existence is essentially to say, ladies and gentlemen, the Messiah of the world. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then every eye goes to Him. And every bit of attention goes to Him. And every face is towards Him. And every bit of praise goes to Him. And I slip out the back and no one remembers me again. That's my life. I'm a voice. And and here's what Luke's point is. Luke's point is to say, if this is how great John is, I mean, to the point that angels come and a miraculous birth and Abraham and Sarah is happening all over again and miracles and signs. If this is how great John is. In fact, in one point in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11, it said, no one has ever been born of woman who is greater than John. I mean, if John is the greatest born of women and yet he's just a voice, then how great is the one he was preparing the way for? That's what Luke is doing. If John is the greatest born of women, and yet at the end of the day, he's a voice in the wilderness, he throws open the back doors, he slips out again, and you never think about him again, then how great is the one that he was getting you ready for? You see, what Luke is doing in the very first words is showing you Jesus is great. Jesus, the one who has come, is great. You see, Luke puts these two stories together to say, listen, is a barren woman getting pregnant something special? I mean, if you think, is a barren woman getting pregnant something amazing? Is that child going to be someone? Then what could possibly top that? How about a virgin woman getting pregnant? That's what he says next. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... Gabriel, the angel, is sent back from the presence of God, and here was the verse, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Jesus is great. Jesus is greater than anyone who's ever been born. I read a line this week that said, when we're ashamed of Jesus, it's like a candle being ashamed of the sun. Because there is no one who has ever been born greater than Jesus Christ. And yet, John now wants to say, not only is Jesus the greatest who has ever been born, Jesus is also the humblest who has ever been born. No one has ever been born greater than Jesus, but also no one has ever been born who is more humble than Jesus as well. I mean, you just think of this. How do heads of state and presidents and prime ministers and celebrities and VIPs, how do they travel? How do they show up somewhere? How do people receive them? I mean, we, we had the Pope come into our city just this year. Uh, we, we had freeway shut down. An entire city shuts down. And yet you contrast that with the greatest one who has ever come. How does he come? And how is his birth announced? See, one of the implications of how Jesus comes is that by Him coming, He is the greater coming to the lesser. I heard that this week and thought through it. It's a wonderful thought. In fact, in His coming, He shows that He's the greater and we are the lesser. You see, the greater can move to the lesser. The lesser can't move to the greater. The ability to move to the lesser shows your greatness. The inability to move to the greater shows your lesserness. He's the greater, and he moves to the lesser. That's the way things work. I mean, mean, you just think of it. Back in science, you remember how molecules could go from saturated to empty, but they can't go from empty into the saturated, because the greater can move to the lesser, but not the other way around. Or you, you can get on the floor and roll around with a baby. You can make gaga noises and goo-goo sounds, but the child can't get up and talk philosophy with you, because... The greater can move to the lesser. The lesser doesn't move to the greater. Or or emotionally, if you have peace and joy, you can move to those who are depressed and in despair. But the depressed and those in despair can't move towards those who are in peace and joy. One is greater, the other is lesser. This is the way that it works. And so God shows even his greatness in that when we could not ascend to him, he condescended down to us. He entered the speck. He became one of us. In fact, he shows that he is the greatest in that the Most High became the Most Low. In the Most High becoming the Most Low, he shows his greatest, and he shows his humility. I mean, would you even consider contrasting how the birth of John is announced with how the birth of Jesus is announced? I mean, even just in these two narratives, John is born to a respected religious family. And where does the announcement come? The angel has to show up during public worship in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel. Israel being God's chosen nation on the earth. So in the most important nation, God has to send the angel to the most important city. And then during public worship, he has to go into the temple, which is the holiest place. And not even just the temple, he has to go into the holy place in the temple. And so, this announcement about John comes to literally the most holiest, religious, important central spot of real estate on the planet. And that's just for the voice. The angel is sent to the most important real estate on the planet to this respectable religious family, and that's just for the forerunner. And yet, think how the one who is even greater than John is announced. The angel doesn't come to the capital city. In fact, he comes to a remote village that no one's heard of. There is a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And if you're going, where's that? That would be exactly Luke's point. Because that's what everyone would have been saying. Where's that? If I told you about Baileyville, Pennsylvania, you would go, where's that? Population 201 in our state. That's what it was like to say that the angel showed up to Nazareth. It wasn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. No one had heard about it. You had to name it out because nobody would have known. In Nazareth in Galilee, and he doesn't come, the angel, not only to a podunk nothing town, he comes to someone no one's heard of. Not to a respected religious priestly man. He comes to a teenage girl. So I read this week, I I learned that in Israel, you could be engaged as early as twelve waited a year for your engagement, and then you got married. And we don't know exactly how old she was, but Mary was at best a girl, a teenager. And this angel comes into a town no one's heard of to a girl no one's heard of. In fact, the text has to tell us her name. We have to be told, and the virgin's name was Mary because nobody would have known. Th- this isn't someone who was climbing up the social ladder in ancient Israel. This is a girl, you got to get her name because nobody would have known. And the angel comes to a know-nothing town, to a nobody, and announces this news. And in fact, in the text you get a clue that Mary's very quite aware that she's a nobody as well. Verse 28, the angel comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. It's almost comical, right? Zachariah sees the angel, he's scared to death. Mary, there's more than just being scared. She's actually a bit confused and troubled. The text says she's trying to discern what kind of greeting is this. I mean, in Mary's mind, here's this angel that says, Greetings to you, O favored one. The Lord is with you. To a 12-year-old. Right? Right? And, and she, you can almost imagine her. This is the kind of greeting, the epic greetings that the saints of old got when they were called to do some great thing. You can almost imagine Mary going, who is he talking to? Looking over her shoulder going, is there someone behind me? She's troubled and she's trying to discern what type of greeting this was. And Luke's point here is, not only is Jesus great, he's humble. He comes as a nobody to Nobodies. Have you come to the awareness that you're a nobody? There's not all that much that is significant or impressive worldly about you. Do you have baggage? Do you have a moral mess? Are, Are you a moral failure? Not all that insignificant. Then you're exactly the kind of company Jesus loves. In fact, he could have picked anywhere on the planet to be and any family to be born in. And he chose a nobody. He chose the least and the last. That's the company Jesus loves. That's the kind of people Jesus loves to use. And and in fact, the text is going to say, listen, the only reason Mary is chosen is because God is gracious. That's what it's going to show us. You, You think about it. Why was it her? Surely there were other virgins in Israel. Surely there were other people Why is it that Mary herself will pray in a few verses down, from now on all generations will call me blessed? Why is she the blessed among all women who has ever lived on the face of the earth? What did she do that would earn her such a high honor? And for us, you'd imagine, there must have been something on that spiritual resume of hers. ...that would have had her stand head and shoulders above all the other girls in Israel... ...or all the other girls in all the world at all time. Surely there must have been something about her. And in fact, Christians have sort of disagreed on this. Some have said she must have been sinless... ...because how else can you make sense of the fact that she becomes the mother of Jesus Christ? And yet that's not what Luke says. Luke says, the Bible says, here's the one reason why she was chosen. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary... For you have found favor with God. Here's why you got chosen, Mary. Because God is gracious. In fact, that's what that word favor means. Favor is literally the word for grace. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace with God. Now, listen to me. I'm not trying to downplay Mary. You see, what happens with the Christian tradition is either she gets exalted to the place where she's almost equal to God, Or, in reaction to that, she gets trashed down to being nothing. No, Mary is wonderfully exemplary, and you'll see that in just a moment. But here, Luke's point is not to make much of Mary, but to make much of the grace of God. To not tell you about the greatness of Mary right now, but to tell you of the greatness of God's grace. You see, Mary is a picture, then, of every Christian. Here's what I mean. If there's a part of you that goes, what did she do that Jesus Christ should have come into her, dwell inside her, be born in her? Well, then, brothers and sisters, is that not the same question every Christian asks? What did I do that Jesus Christ should come and live in me, dwell in my heart? It's the same reason. Why did any one of us get chosen except for the sheer grace of God, that there was nothing about you and your spiritual resume that put you above any other candidate. You weren't standing head and shoulders above your peers or your siblings or anyone else. There is no reason why you know the Lord and people in your life don't, except for the sheer grace of God. Brother, sister, an angel could tell us, greetings, O favored one of the Lord. The Lord is with you that through nothing of your own, God has chosen to dwell inside you. This is the message not just for Mary, this is the message for every Christian who has ever been a Christian, to wonder, why was I chosen? Why did he look down the corridors of time and history and set his affection on me and orchestrate things in my life so that I would come to believe in him, so that he would come to reside in me, accept the grace of God? You see, Luke is saying... Adore Jesus in this season because he's great, because he's humble, because he's gracious. And here's what he ends with in verses 31 to 37. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Luke is saying, let's adore Jesus because he's great and because he's humble and he's because he's gracious. And here he says, Mary, listen, you're going to call this child Jesus. Jesus is the name derived from Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Matthew's gospel is going to add, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So this child coming into the world is a savior. And then the angel adds, and moreover, the Lord's going to give him the throne of his father David. He's going to reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, for the sake of time, let me tell you, this is talk of the Messiah. That's the language. In the Old Testament, there was this hope that there is coming one. One child, one Messiah, who's going to redeem everything. The backstory story is, if you read Genesis... The first man and the first woman sin. In that moment, there's a promise. There's coming a child of the woman who's going to crush the serpent. And with every page of the Old Testament, you're waiting, is this the child? Right? Eve, the first woman, is given that promise. And so she has two sons. And you go, maybe one of them is the child. Except you find that Cain kills Abel the righteous. And Cain proves to be a murderer. It's not them. They have more children. And each one, each generation going, is this the child? And then you get this man, Abraham, this man of faith. He's justified by faith. Maybe this is the one, except you read his story. You go, he's a liar. He's a sinner. He's just as messed up as all the rest. It's not him. Maybe it's his son, Isaac, the child of promise, born to the barren couple, except he's a mess. And you find out it's not him. Well, he's got kids. And every generation goes by. Now you get David. Here's this king, a man after God's own heart. He conquers God's enemies. Maybe this is the one. He sleeps with a woman that's not his wife. Kills her husband. He's a mess and a failure. You go, it's not him. Well, to him is given this promise. You're going to have a son, and his reign will be forever. His kingdom will last forever. He's got a son named Solomon. He's the wisest there is. And you go, maybe this is the one. Except he walks in more sin than his father does, following idols and all the rest. It's not him. And with every generation, you go, when is this child coming? All the way to Luke 1 until an angel shows up to a know-nothing town, to a know-nothing girl, and says, you will have a child. Not anyone before you, not anyone after you. You don't have to wait anymore. This is the child who will sit on his father David's throne, who will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The wait has at long last been realized. Here now is the Messiah of the world, who will establish Yahweh's rule and reign, who will push out the darkness, who will overcome the serpent, who will fix the world and heal our brokenness? It's here. It's this child. Jesus is the Messiah the world has been waiting for. Great and humble and gracious Messiah. Now, the implication of the resurrection, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is that he's great, the greater moving to the lesser. But the other implication of the incarnation of him coming to us is that we are a mess. We're broken. Now, where do you see that? I heard a preacher who said it perfectly. He said, you know, the gifts you get imply something about you. The gifts you get imply something about you. So, for example, if I had a bunch of friends and they brought over gifts and and, and they're standing together and they give me this gift and I open the first one and it goes, you know, conversations for beginners. How to have conversation for beginners. I receive that book, and I go, okay, thanks so much, I think. And and then another friend gives me a gift, and I open it up, and and it's a diet book and a year subscription to the gym. Okay, And then I get a third gift, and I open it up, and it's it's a bottle of Rogaine. Right? Now what do I, listen, the moment I receive this, what do I have to do? I'm admitting in receiving these gifts, I'm overweight, and I'm a bit socially awkward, and I'm losing my hair. Right? (laughs) Those gifts imply something about me now. The Lord sent into the world a savior. So what does that imply about the world you and I live in? He sent into the world a rescuer. What does that imply about what you need? He sent into the world a Messiah. What does that speak about this world we live in? You see, this holiday season is more than sentimental empty cheer. This is the harsh word. Your world is broken but I have sent someone to fix it. Your, your world in disrepair, I have sent a savior to heal it. You see, his incarnation is the implication that he's great, he's moving to the lesser, and that we're a mess who need a savior. And Mary goes, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin, and, and, and the response back is, listen, the entire trinity is getting involved in this. The The Holy One, the Most High's power is going to overshadow you. And the Holy Spirit is going to come inside you. And you're going to give birth to a son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all in. Because that's what it will take to fix your broken world and its broken creatures. And that thing that happened in his birth is going to be the same thing that happens even throughout his life unto his death. That the Trinity is going to be there also. That as this Son, grown up, sinless and perfect and pure, is strung up to a cross, dying for our sins, that in that moment the Son is going to look up to the heavens and see that it's empty, at least to Him, because the Father has abandoned Him, forsaken Him, pouring out His wrath upon us. And, and the Spirit is going to offer this sacrifice of the Son to the Father. And all three will be involved in His resurrection as well, You see, what Christmas begins is all the triune God, the triune God is involved in your salvation. It was so in his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, because this is what it will take to heal your broken life and our broken world. This is the good news of Christmas. And and while it's saying this is how great he is for coming to us, it's also saying this is how great you are to him, that he would do that for you. That it would cost him everything, and he'd do it gladly if it meant he could have you. That's the message of Christmas. It'll cost him everything, and he'll do it gladly if it means he could have you. Jesus is great, and he's humble, and he's gracious, and he's the Messiah who has come to fix our brokenness and our mess. So here's the last thing I want to say. How should you respond? Let's respond like Mary does in verse 38 and just hear this. And Mary said, Behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That is how you should respond. I mean, she has just been told this incredible news, and her response is, let it be to me as you have said, because I'm the Lord's servant. That's the posture. She's saying, look, I'm handing over all authority of my life. My life, my body, It doesn't belong to me. I don't get to do with my body what I want. Here's this woman saying, I'm going to take this pregnancy on if that's what the Lord says. Here's my life. Here's my time. And and you think all that it's going to cost her. You can imagine what it will cost her reputation for a teenage single girl in Israel to be pregnant during her engagement for people to see her belly grow. Can you imagine the comments The snickers, the snide remarks, the looks, the glances as she's going to have to go out. And in fact, the shadow of that suspicious pregnancy will last all Jesus' life. It's not like it's all going to go away and everyone's going to believe, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit did that to you. It's going to be a stain on her. Uh, Or what's it going to cost her relationship with Joseph as she has to now explain to her fiancé why she's pregnant? Or what's it going to cost her whole life? And yet she says, here, I've I've given all authority of my life. I've handed it over to you. And in that way, Mary is a blueprint for all of us of what it means to be a Christian. You want to know what a Christian is? It's a nobody who receives the grace of God and responds to that grace by saying, my whole life is yours now. You get to call the shots. My time, my money, my priorities, my will, I am the Lord's servant. Let it happen to me as you say from here on out. So Luke is telling us in this season, come, let us adore him. And this morning, let's adore Mary's son. Let's pray together.